This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I look at the, the food, it's like songs. I look at the restaurant, it's like an album. So I'm trying to make the best album. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Solejo. On this episode, we speak with Toriano Gordon, chef and owner of Oakland's really, really popular vegan mob restaurant. Toriano is a chef, he's a business owner, and he's also a rapper. Welcome to the vegan mob. Welcome to the vegan mob. His track about vegan mob is kind of a banger. I oh, man. love it. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, it low key kind of hits. I wasn't expecting a restaurant theme song to like hit like that, but wow! All right then. I like also the the branding of Vegan Mob, right? Like you're you're being asked to join a group like Juggalos. I hope that oh, they have yeah. like this vegan answer to the Juggalos because you know Juggalo Army is very much a <laughs> a distinct group of people, you know. I think the mob might be one as well. Yeah, yeah. Join the mob. Yeah, I love it. That said, let's go to the interview. Vegan Mob, man, has been a hit since it first opened. And yeah, we wanted to, you know, explain to people how you go from being a, a prominent rap artist in the Bay Area to being like one of the more prominent chefs of a vegan restaurant actually i took the i just took the energy that i learned from doing the music and just took it to the restaurant you know same everything just as food now and so um that's why it's so much alike to me you know i look at the the food is like dinner plates i mean it's like songs i look at the restaurant as like an album so i'm trying to make the best album <laughs> can you talk a little bit more about that i'm so curious to hear about the similarities between cooking and making music i think that's so fascinating when i know i'm making a great when i'm making a good song i get i get super excited i might hit me like i do i say a line that's that's dope i might laugh or something right <laughs> <laughs> sure. same with the food it's like when i when i'm making something up and i come up with a good recipe and something like a great idea my eyes get big. I might, I might laugh. I might tell my wife. I might jump around. It's like the same. Like I get the same exact energy that I get if I'm making like a good song, like with the food. It's just like they call it culinary arts, but I guess for a different reason because of the presentation. But I always thought of cooking as an art, like of creating. Like I, I look at it the same way. Like I'm an artist, so I feel like they, they got a lot of similarities. Make people feel good, changes people's energy. Like to me, it's like hand in hand. I want to know more about this, this subset of folks who go from rap to restaurant tour. Can you tell me more? I think food and, and hip hop have been intertwined for the longest. Like, you know, you can go back to since hip hop began where people are talking about food in some capacity, but when it comes to like actual business owners and people making move moves with food companies, I feel like that's relatively new. Because even out here, like E-40 has had 
a ton of companies, like whether it's like liquor companies, wine companies, like that man's always dabbling in something. And he also, you know, just a couple of years ago, joined up with the Lumpia company and, you know, they sell Filipino egg rolls and they're just super popular. And I think that's like the first notable step into the food world, but it was a sign of like how hip hop artists are taking this this business seriously. It's funny because I remember when I first moved out here, like, and I went to Brown Sugar Kitchen, like the soul food spot in Oakland. And before my first trip, somebody was like, "Oh man, you should go." I heard Drake was there in like 2016, and it kind of <laughs> and it kind of gave it like this added kind of like prestige, you know. But I also would later find out that Drake also went to the French Laundry. And had dinner there, but no one said that. They were just like, oh, man, you know, Drake was at, uh, you know, at Brown Sugar Kitchen. And it's just, I mean, there's just this connection between, like, black culture, hip hop, and food that just runs really, really deep. Yeah. I mean, all I know, you know, prior to this, you know, Jay-Z, for instance, owns the building where the Spotted Pig was. (laughs) So that was kind of my my understanding. And you see this a lot in sports, too. A lot of athletes end up having restaurants too, like Wayne Gretzky, I think. Michael Jordan had a couple of restaurants. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And locally, we have um, Marshawn Lynch with Rob Benz, right? There you go. Yeah. And they all have, well, I won't say they all. Rob Benz, for damn sure, you and I both know this, has a very, like, like a foundation of it is like a hip hop crowd. Like a lot of people that are in the music scene outside of athletes go there. But I, I feel like in the Bay Area, we take it, our hip hop artists take food and you know, their beverage companies really seriously. And it might be the same thing everywhere else. I don't know. Like, because in, in Atlanta, they that rapper Ludacris, who maybe more people now know from like <laughs> Fast and the Furious, but he has a restaurant at the airport out there called Chicken and Beer. I think there's another rapper, 2 Chains, has like a cookbook. G-Eazy has, you know, that Stillhouse liquor brand. I mean, there's something about hip hop artists nowadays, like moving into food where they feel like they can navigate that world with confidence the same way they do the music scene. And and it seems like it's working for them. Fun fact, I just remembered. So Kung Food, also in San Francisco, owned by a rapper. Oh, interesting. His name is Andy Yang, but he, he, he is a working rapper and he has a Chinese restaurant. Oh, yeah. By the way, last one, uh, not last one, but the one that we can remember, Senior Sisig. You know, Toriano mentioned, I, th- I feel like is. It's really important to note that, you know, Cohen or Evan Kadera had a legitimate hip hop career out here. It goes deep. It goes deep. So, yeah, I'm actually kind of curious about like, you know, I think for many men, too, eating meat is a sign of being like really macho or really masculine. And I'm curious about like how you react to that or how do you kind of deal with that weird perception? Beef. Beef is like. It's manly, right? That's that's how some of them react, you know. But I I explain the health benefits, you know, like yeah, this this is manly too, you know, being healthy, like and and, and surprisingly, you know, men are trying to be manly manly because they want a woman to like them. Well, surprisingly, a lot of women like men who are who are health conscious and and, 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 and you know and progressive, and so you know I I just explain to them like, hey man, it's good for you. Protein help your muscle. You know, we got plant protein can help your muscles too. You know, and that's it. But for myself, it never really crossed my mind. Like it never crossed my mind. But people trip off of that about me, especially like being a black man and a rapper. But 
Be Legit from Vallejo, one of the hardest rappers out of the Bay Area. He he a vegan, you know. <laughs> so I say stuff like, you know, Be a vegan. You know, I say stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That was a super interesting answer from Toriano. I, I love that you brought that up. Like, explain to me what, what you're asking. I don't know. I mean, when I think about broad American politics, there is this really interesting thing going on about meat and men that is very ideological. Senator Kamala Harris said she would change the dietary guidelines of this country to reduce the amount of red meat Americans can eat. Well, I've got some red meat for you. We're not going to let Joe Biden and Kamala Harris cut America's meat. I don't know if you've heard the term soy boy. Have you heard? Do you know what that means? No, explain that. <laughs> so soy boy is a derogatory term used by sort of like right wing men, usually white men who... um you know, are directing it towards like the cosmopolitan, effeminate man who might be a vegetarian or have has eaten too much soy and has like estrogen like heightened oh my in his body. God. Yeah, it's like this weird like macho thing, right? And of course, like a real man eats beef, as Toriano says. Um, <laughs> and you know, like I think this has this dovetails with stuff like Jordan Peterson's work, who has been really instrumental in kind of bringing in this like neo-masculine ideology and he also famously only eats beef oh all i eat is meat and greens that's it no juice no no vegetables no carbohydrates meat greens that's it he might be dead i'm not really sure <laughs> um that's a whole other issue he might be like weekend at bernie's it up right now somewhere <laughs> in canada I'm, that's tbd but yeah. yeah like the whole like thing about meat and manliness is, it feels like such an old idea, but it is a constant idea. And it's uh, its interesting to hear from folks like Toriano that they've kind of transcended that. They're just like, screw that. I don't care. That's a really good point. And what makes it even more interesting is that he's from a, like an outside perspective, even if it is misguided in many ways, uh, the hip hop scene is like a very masculine scene. Like mm -hmm. dudes want to be dudes almost like cartoon characters of men and for him to talk about like the bay area you know especially when it comes to black rappers the discussion when it comes to masculinity as it deals with food they think that's the, to connect those two things doesn't make any sense their preference is to live healthy lives and if someone deems that not being masculine they don't give a shit right like being alive to like watch your kids grow up is more manly to them. I mean, especially when you think about the sort of disproportionate rates of diabetes, hypertension in the black community, yeah. uh, and how veganism has become more and more of a presence in culture, right? Like as a reaction almost to that, yeah. to like the food yeah. system and to the prevalence of processed foods and like meat in the diet that make you know, that give you like these really bad health outcomes. Veganism itself is something that I, I do think, you know, like a lot of black people are starting to learn more about, you know, if they weren't interested in it before. And vegan soul food, you know, especially for ones that are familiar with that food, it's an easy transition for them into that world because they can identify dishes, um, even like identify some flavors. But the base things that 
may not have been great for them in terms of ingredients are replaced by something that is. So it's this, um, yeah, it's just this easy path to transition into to healthy, you know, healthy eating. And I just think it's cool. I really also enjoyed his point about how, you know, like women like a man who takes care of himself. I mean, mean, just take care of yourselves, people. That's it. I feel like a lot of a lot of artists are starting to think about their diets like. It's not like it was in the mid-2000s when I think people really didn't care about what they were putting in their bodies. But now it seems like they are. Can you explain that kind of transition, that evolution in the, in the rap game? I think part of it has to do with um, with Dr. Sebi, being that he was a black doctor. And then it was brought like, into a lot of people were um, aware from like Nipsey and, I don't, you know, and just the Internet. You know what I'm saying? For me, like I before that, I was already on to it, you know. I've been like that for years. Like I've been trying to eat healthy. Like I stopped eating pork. You know what I mean? I do this. I've even experimented with veganism, but I wasn't good at it. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, no, this ain't working. But with these substitutes that came along and things like that made it much easier to do. But um, yeah, I think just like awareness, the people who are starting to tell, just kind of bring it, bring it to your attention. It, you know, they're, they're, it's cool. So like, that's why Vegan Mob is dope because I'm the owner and they see, and it, and it has this certain type of food and they're like, okay, it, it's cool to be vegan. It's cool to eat healthy. You know, we got to be legit up here. We got, we got this rapper side. Oh, you know what I'm saying? We got this graffiti on the wall. We got Jack on the, on the, on the side. You know what I mean? Okay. Just hold up real quick. Uh, Justin, who is Dr. Sebi? I'm not familiar with that name. Yeah. So Dr. Sebi, like, especially in the black community and especially like the hip hop community, um, you know, people recognized him as a uh, kind of like a healer of sorts. He would practice, you know, he would preach about healthy dieting, the foods that you should eat, things that would poison your body. And, you know, like the information that he provided people for a long time, and especially now, I don't know what it is about right now, but a lot of uh, a lot of artists are like reading into the things that Dr. Se- uh, Sebi used to say, but um yeah, I mean, it, it made a lot of people, like, change the way that they looked at food, change the way that they, uh, you know, just, just kind of pivoted them towards more healthy lifestyles all around. So not like Dr. Seuss, more like Dr. Deepak Chopra? Yeah. By the way, just as an aside, like, doc- Dr. Sebi wasn't, like, a, a licensed doctor, uh, but I don't think that really mattered with how people uh, approach the information that he doled out. So he's more like the Martha Stewart of <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Yeah. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that explanation, Justin. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Justin, and we're back with Toriano Gordon, chef and owner of Oakland's Vegan Mob. So when you're going around, because like at some point you have to go up to people, because I know you got other projects and stuff that you're trying to work on. But you have to go up to um, people who might want to be investors. You have to deal with like real estate people. When you show up with your brand and your style, um, what's the reaction that you get from people? Like, is it is it harder to navigate this like vegan world as a you know as like a, as like a rapper and a black guy? Or do are people buying in that vegan food can look different and come from different communities? Like, what's the response? It's mind blowing, you know. In the beginning some people had negative responses to it. Like, how, how's that going to work? You know what I mean? 
not not the uh, majority, you know. But now, now that they know it's real, I I barely hear nothing unless I'm talking to somebody that knows nothing about it. But they, yeah, they 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 love it. Like they're they, you know, they're loving it. It's at first, yeah, I had to explain how big it was, and also with the social media and stuff. They see the social media and everything. They're like, oh yeah, they were, it were it was easier to to get, you know loans and things like that because I my social media was jumping. So that helps. You talked a lot about how you were doing, you know, some outreach or specifically reaching out to people in your community um, about veganism. But I'm curious about the other way around, right? Like, have there been conversations you've been having in like the broader vegan community about the Black community and Black issues that have been really instrumental in like reconciling those two worlds that aren't necessarily like, you know, opposed, but certainly there hasn't been a lot of connection um, in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, I don't know, but I know that I do on my page, I promote awareness like to Black Lives Matters and, you know, and, and, and things. I, I'm cool. Like we, we I have interactions, like I've done things um, in the vegan community, like, you know, pop-ups and things like that and everything you know everything is good but for me I'm not you know I'm not I'm not out there like um, protesting about animal cruelty and everything like that although I I think it's wrong and that's new to me too it took me not to eat meat for a while to be like oh man that's terrible but I didn't I didn't think like that at first I haven't got really deep into it or nothing like that I, I like the fact that uh, it wasn't just you shifting your diet. You've also done like a lot of reading, you know, like a lot of research. It's a mental journey as much as it is a physical journey. I know you've talked about like documentaries that you've watched. I know you've had conversations about it. Yeah, what the health and just um, watching things with Dr. Sebi and everything, talking to people, um, just learning about the energy. My grandmother actually gave me a lot, of, a lot of knowledge too. And she gets deep into it about like um, the energy that you take from the animals and, you know, and the cancers that it causes. And like, she gets real deep into it. And, and if you really care about yourself and your energy and your body, you're gonna, you're gonna make that change, you know, after you watch these documentaries, after you talk to her. But the craziest thing is I was, flirting with the idea of veganism you know before i became a vegan because after i stopped drinking and everything i wanted to get really healthy and that was over 10 years ago right and then we found out that my grandmother is vegan <laughs> i never really knew her about nothing you know what i mean and then i got this restaurant and she has a she has a um a vegan cookbook and so i'm not even nowhere near her we're not in the same state or anything we don't even talk like that but it shows you how the genes mm -hmm. really flow mm -hmm. down, you know what I mean? Um, so I've gotten a lot of knowledge from her for when I talk to her, you know, when I get a chance to talk to her and stuff like that. And what the health and this other one, I think it was called um, Cowspiracy. Yeah, it, it show you some crazy stuff. Like people who eat meat will not watch it because they don't know it'll change their mind. That that right there kind of kind of kind of kind of trips me out though, because you're saying you don't want to know the truth. <laughs> that's what I that's that's what I take it as, you know. But it, it, there's a lot of knowledge in those in those documentaries and, and things. So um yeah, I learned a lot from that. 
I could never hear uh, enough about this, but you know, the direct connection to like veganism, African culture, African American culture. Uh, like, you know, I, I think people should know that like African American vegan is not, shouldn't be considered an oxymoron. Like, even if you go back to uh, like pre colonial Africa, most of the people then ate. I guess I, you describe it as like plant-based diets. And it wasn't until, you know, globetrotters, adventurers, slave traders came to the continent and um, introduced kind of like the large-scale domestication of animals and all that, that their diets uh, were changed. But before that, like a lot of the recipes that, you know, grandmothers would pass down, maybe even like pieces of recipes would be kind of rooted in veganism. And you wouldn't, you know, a lot of Black people don't understand that. And I know it took me a long time to learn that, that, you know, some of the things that my grandmother cooked, that my great grandmother might have made, like some of those recipes had vegan roots. Right. And I think that there are so many really great cookbook authors and recipe writers and food writers in general, chefs, who are doing amazing work right now to draw those connections a lot more explicitly, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Locally, Bryant Terry is one of the shining lights i think of veganism his most recent book is vegetable kingdom and yeah yeah they're yeah. so great and he he also brings music into cooking you know like each of his chapters each of his recipes comes with a sort of playlist or a suggested um, music track to listen to as you're cooking which i think is so wonderful i mean the amazing thing about it is that you know when it comes to like vegan food and vegan cooking and it's coming from black chefs I mean, I hate to I hate to use the word colorful. I feel like that's just such a weird way to put it. But it's an immersive experience because like music, it can't be disconnected from it. It's a like the food, the recipes, even if it's, a, you know, if it's a restaurant where you go, because we also forget about like Solely Vegan, which is another uh, black owned vegan spot in the East Bay. All these places are just really immersive experiences. And, you know, you can definitely get that vibe from from Brian Terry's cookbook. Like if that was a restaurant, that would be one happening ass restaurant. Oh my God, I would die if he opened a restaurant. <laughs> I'm telling you. His recipes are so good. Hey, Brian Terry, we know what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> I will go to there. Let's do it. Yeah. So that was Toriano Gordon uh, of Vegan Mob. We forget we have such characters in this food scene and it's really great to, to get them to sit down and talk to us. It was such a delight. I'm so glad he came on the show. And I'm also glad that we are doing What Is This Nonsense right afterwards. What? What? Is. What is this? What is this nonsense? So there is this sushi place. It has a Michelin star in Soma, which is a sort of downtown neighborhood. It's really, really close to the Chronicle office, actually. And um, we recently did a story about how they have these plastic igloos over their outdoor tables. And the manager told our colleague, Janelle, that it was sort of to repel or to keep diners safe, you know, in their little bubble, but also to repel the unsavory crowd that gathers around there. And that's, that's not, I would not characterize the crowd as unsavory, but it was explicitly to shield diners from unhoused people in the neighborhood, right? Period. And so... You know, that was that was really a lot. <laughs> and and I asked people on Instagram and other social media sites, like, what do you think? How do you feel about these these bubbles? And it was a mix, a lot of really passionate responses. 
for some people, it really dramatized wealth inequality in the city. For others, they were more nuanced. They really understand like restaurants are in a bind right now and they just do whatever they can do to survive. And others are just, you know, excited. They want the bubble. They are very, 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 very into the bubble. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And yeah, so I wrote a story that was just the reactions. It was supposed to just be a collection of reactions, but then I started reacting and I was like, okay, let's just, let's just go. Let's just do this. And <laughs> the the headline ended up being like, the fine dining domes are everything wrong with America in a plastic nutshell, which is so, <laughs> so me. Uh, your take was spot on. And I think one of the reasons this has resonated so much, at least, at least with me, I remember when I first moved out here, I used to try to, I used to have to describe to people back home what it was like living in San Francisco or Oakland. And I used to describe it as like people out here create their own bubbles. Like you, you will literally see people in the city ride bikes, let's say pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic for sure. Um, Ride their bikes across town, have to go through an encampment, you know, just are really tough scenes. And then they'll go straight past that place and then stop at a restaurant and drop, you know, $300 per person on a meal and then get back on their bikes and ride back past those things and not think twice about it. I can't walk past stuff like that and not think about it later on. Some people can. You basically hit the nail on the head uh, in covering this. It's just it says so much about the city and the country itself, really. Right. I mean, the whole point, too, is that it's easy to say the sushi restaurant is the bad guy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's easy to say that this is a political cartoon, essentially, and it there are the haves and the have-nots and the morally wrong and the morally right. But what I thought was really important to emphasize was that these places, like the sushi restaurant, are desperate You know, many restaurants in the Bay Area and I'm sure elsewhere are staying open because of the staff or because they have to pay rent because they're not being taken care of and their staff aren't being taken care of. And, you know, again, like if we had a more robust social safety net to take care of people, if we had a more realistic policy about commercial rent because no one's making money right now. And if we want to avoid like a mass culling of restaurants there needs to be something like something has to happen. Otherwise, what we have are domes. You know, so after that story, as we usually do with news stories, we kind of like put feelers out, you know, like you did. You, you gathered responses. I reached out to some other restaurant chef, you know, chefs and restaurant owners to get their reaction from <laughs> from the story, which was you know, the initial story, right? That Janelle wrote the, in, the initial story that Janelle wrote. Yes. You know, and a lot of what they said is kind of reflected in what you just said, where these are unprecedented times. And if a dome is what you need to, like, get people there to generate some revenue, then a dome is what you have to do. Like some were like, you know. It's not my cup of tea. And other ones are like, I get it. Throw anything at the wall to see if it works right now. Again, this is nonsense. It's not particularly funny nonsense. So I apologize this week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Although someone did tell me that they thought it would be really cool to hotbox a dome, which I am all for. See? See? We would bring we would bring it back around until it was like entertaining again. Hotbox and domes. There you go. Although one of the editors like highlighted that comment that I included and they were like, wait, what is this? Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm not about to explain hot boxing. I'm sorry. Oh, man. They can show you better than I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great note to end on. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's that's perfect. Yeah, so that's all we have for today's episode. <laughs> Thanks again to Toriano for being in conversation with us. You can read the transcript of our interview with Toriano at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extra spicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleil on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 